light or darkness or I don't think early morning, but um, really nice to be here with you this evening. Where, where most of us live in the Northern Hemisphere, this is the season of cold and dark nights. Actually, can you see behind me? Um, it's the season of the longest nights of the year. When, when the light and the warmth goes out, literally or metaphorically, whether we're talking about the outer light or the inner light and warmth. So when, when this goes out, it seems to be for so many of us, whether it's in ordinary times or extraordinary times like now, um, it's a time of challenge and uncertainty. Well, it's no, it's no coincidence that, that we compensate. We compensate for that. This is the season usually of so many lights, Yule logs, tradition of the Yule logs, so many candles and gifts and good food. And in ordinary times, we often gather for, for parties, for celebrations. All of this, I think, meant to lighten us and warm us up. But often, often all the lights and the gaiety that are usually associated with this season, it tends or it can tend to illuminate the depth of darkness instead the inner darkness, the, the, that sense of, um, of isolation, of separateness. Thus, two words so strongly associated with this time of year, especially obviously in the Northern Hemisphere, the words are light and dark, or lightness and, and darkness. And what a good example of how words can be infused with subtle conditioning that may have its origin, you know, eons, eons ago. It may have its origin before even conscious recollection. So the light metaphorically often represents goodness or purity what we seek, enlightenment, wisdom, you know, the, the light bulb going on over the head and the heavenly realms. And the dark, its apparent polarity, often represents what is hidden or unclear, muddied, sometimes even sinister or evil forces or hell realms. The so-called dark ages were a time of struggle and the plague, a time of ignorance and death. So some of these references may stem from, um, from the medieval Christian church, but it amazes me how light and dark still carry some of these meanings, however subtly or unconsciously. 
This is amazing to me because we know otherwise. If we look closely at our own experience, I think we can put an altogether different face on what we call light and what we call dark. So when we think outside these dominant cultural conditionings that can, that can cause pain and that can perpetuate bias, we know from our own experience that light can be too bright or too hot. It can jar us or blind us or burn us. And the word light can mean superficial, a lack of depth or strength. And darkness, can we see darkness as the productive womb or earth as incubator of seeds and of life? Can we see darkness as the moist, squishy mud that gives birth to the lotus, which is a symbol of spirituality? It is also darkness that gives rest and that grows life. So with the change of seasons, with the solstice, the passing of the light into darkness and the darkness into light, the turning of the wheel, the changing of the seasons, seeing that the cycle of life includes life and dying and regeneration and feeling into the inevitability of that. Can we see this as a, as a metaphor for dukkha, the, the Pali word for often, most often um, translated as suffering, but meaning so much more. And we'll talk about that um, further during the retreat. So we can see the inevitability of the turning of the wheel um, as a metaphor for change, for unreliability and for, for angst. I like the reference of the turning of the wheel to express the cycles of life and the changing seasons. The wheel is round. But to me, that's an inclusive form. And it's interdependent with all the spokes. The out, outer part of the wheel would, would collapse or distort without the spokes that radiate within it. So to me, it's a symbol of wholeness, of interdependence and of inclusivity. I wish, I wish that we could reconcile with, with our wholeness, with the inner darkness as well as the inner light, with the fear and the anger, the joy, the sorrow, all of it without clinging, without taking it up as me or I or mine or who I am, 
seeing it instead perhaps as another arising and passing due to conditions, due to nature. When we open, when we open to these, to these emotions or any aspect of our, any, any aspect of our wholeness, it changes. It has the power to transform. Can we also see a different side, a different aspect to the fear and the anger and the anxiety? Doesn't the fear and anger and sometimes anxiety often spur us to speak out? And when we collectively speak out, there's an energy toward action and change beyond what a separate self can often do. It's like the power and the strength of meditating in a, in a group. So to me, this points to, to wholeness, the ability to embrace and welcome ourselves and each other in our wholeness, inclusively, opening to negativity when it shows, to anxiety and anger, even rage, and especially grief. There's a word in the, in the teachings of the Buddha that um, is familiar to many of you. In the Pali language, it is metta, M-E-T-T-A. It's translated as friendliness or kindness or loving kindness. And this quality of metta and the practice of metta is the intention to embrace and befriend ourselves in our wholeness, including all the sticky bits. And likewise, to befriend others, to befriend all beings, all life, all situations as best we can moment by moment. We can include all sittings, um, all, all walking practice, as much as possible, as much as possible without judgment, inclining the heart to inclusivity, not as a demand, but as a gentle, kindly intention. Metta or friendliness, it to me is such a noble intention, but I think especially at this time in this past year now. It's been such a challenging year and there is so much uncertainty and angst about the year that begins in two days. And in the silence and slowing down on retreat, our minds and bodies are showing the effect of life as it's been for each of us and collectively. We invite silence as a cornerstone for retreat. Paradoxically, is silence what has been showing up in the mind? How much silence are you experiencing within? 
how much angst or resistance or aversion, how much if only, how much, oh, I wish things could be different. I wish I could be different or the world could be different. Metta and the meditation practice doesn't ask us to get rid of our thoughts or emotions. It asks us to open to them, but with metta, with friendliness as we experience them in the body. <clears throat> Some of you might be familiar with, with Joanna Macy as, um, as a beloved environmentalist, as a Buddhist teacher, as an elder, very elderly elder and activist and still an activist. She said, don't be afraid of the dark. So we could paraphrase that. Don't be afraid of the unknown, of what might be the unseen. Know that we are never separated from the web of life. Dark and light are both woven into the web of life. Whatever you feel, it's important to feel it. Those emotions are not private. They are an appropriate response to the political environment and social situation in the world today. Not letting the fear out isolates us, saps our creative energy. And I heard her say this at least five years ago. And how relevant is it today? So, oh my gosh, you know, how many of us are feeling our energy depleted, our creativity sapped? Please take a moment to feel the impact of this, of the past year's limitations and losses. Feeling into the body and into the breath. Perhaps feeling numbness or dullness, or maybe some relief at being here together. Perhaps the sensations of raw emotion or loss, or perhaps an, un an upwelling of the heart. As Joanna Macy said, whatever you feel, it's important to feel it. Those of us who cultivate an intention to live an ethical life, those of us who live with an intention to live, to embody the precepts, those of us who, who, wish, who wish to understand and embody the Buddha's teachings of wisdom and compassion and non-harming and non-separateness, Many of us are questioning what it means to live in practice amidst the disturbing events in the wider world. Confusion, uncertainty, fear, and exhaustion seem to exemplify our present experience. 
especially since the internet brings the world to our eyes and ears so viscerally. It wakes me up at night and prompts a lot of inquiry as I know it does for many of you as well. So what does it mean to live skillfully? What informs our practice? How can we support ourselves and others, those near and dear and those in our communities, our global sisters and brothers, in the midst of so much loss and racism, injustice, environmental degradation and economic hardship, these are, these are important questions. And asking them of ourselves and asking them in community feels important. It shows that we are intricately connected to what's happening in the larger sphere of community and world. It shows we care. And that's an important step leading to wise intention and action. It shows we are living with uncertainty and discomfort. We are not separate from one another and we are not separate from the conditions in the world. The Buddha's teaching says, if we, if we are born, if we have a body, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So he's describing dukkha. Aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair comes to be. Such is the whole mass of suffering. So to be embodied, to be alive is to know despair, loss, frustration, angst, ad nauseum. This is, the this is the human condition. We are not alone in this experience. This is the nature. And to feel the pain of suffering, our own and that of others, is what can wake us up, can wake us up to wise intention and action as well as waking up to our limitations. So that brings up something else for our reflection. Many of us really want to participate in the ending of dukkha, in the ending of real suffering in the world around us. We do. Yet how many of us are overextended, exhausted, weary, of feeling hopeless and helpless in the presence of serious demands on us as individuals, as family members, as citizens in the current world. So please, let's take care of ourselves and model for others what that means. Let's prioritize what is actually possible and what is most important, which may mean letting go of some things. Too much is not good, 
even if much seems important. So maybe consider, is there one area of participation in the wider world that I can commit to and follow through with consistently? Is there one area of participation in self-care that I can commit to and follow through on consistently? But, you know, just like on an airplane when we're instructed to put our own oxygen mask on before helping others. We need to cultivate the conditions for steadiness and calmness and energy and clarity. So our presence in the world, both personally and in the wider sphere, is beneficial. So please, let's be inspired by the waxing and waning of the moon by the rise and fall of the tides, by the changing of the seasons. There are times for full-on energy and engagement, and also times for quiet revitalization and reflection. Aren't they each important? And doesn't each make the other possible? So here we are together, approaching New Year's Eve, approaching January 2021, finally at last, experiencing the turning of our earth, either towards or away from the sun, depending on the hemisphere. And it brings to mind that the month January comes from the Roman calendar which names this coming month, January, after Janus, the Roman god, whose head had two faces, one looking back and the other looking ahead, symbolizing the perceived transition that New Year's Eve um, designates. And it brings to mind for me the sense that if we are preoccupied or burdened or blinded by the past, we can't fully face the coming year. We can't take that step. So if we're locked looking at the past, we can't step into the present or the future. And if we are preoccupied with what comes next, or what we've all come through this past year, we can't fully be present in this moment. So I'm imagining poor Janice swiveling his head backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. What a stiff neck, swiveling in uncertainty and in reliability. Poor guy. So, To stand or to sit in the present moment, even with uncertainty, to be here fully in the present moment, invites stillness, non-swiveling. It in invites steadiness with however things are, with however this being is feeling. 
It invites a moment of equanimity in the winds of the world. Gina Sharp is a meditation teacher in the States. Um, she's based um, in New York with New York Insight. And I read this I, uh, in, oh, it might've been in, um, you know, one of the Buddhist magazines, she had an article and this has stuck with me. It just touched my heart so much. She wrote love or metta with equanimity is a love that can become intimate with loss, with grief. It can stand firmly in the fire of conflict and it can withstand suffering without recoiling. It is the kind of love that does not shrink from the truth. It is relentlessly inclusive. Thank you, Gina. It's the kind of love that does not shrink from the truth. So it does not shrink from the truth of impermanence, change, unreliability. And it is a stillness even in a storm that allows seeing more than the mind's small view of things. That what may be happening in this moment is unpleasant and unasked for and really difficult to bear. By inviting some moments of stillness, of equanimity, as we are hoping to do on this retreat, it allows space, it allows the quiet for the changing nature of life to show itself and remind us that change is inevitable and that I'm not alone in the suffering, that regeneration is possible and that the cycle of life includes life and dying and regeneration. The lotus grows out of the decaying matter of the mud. It's regeneration. The seed needs darkness to regenerate. And what we perceive as broken and cracked is often where the light comes through. In the, I think it was the star this week, on Saturday, which is a, a Toronto newspaper. So a wonderful opinion piece by Marcus G about Toronto's Leslie Street spit, speaking to resilience. And the title is An Accidental Wilderness with Lessons to Teach. So, the Leslie Street spit is, is, a, is a, or started as a man-made pile of rubble. Jumble, uh, uh, the, what, I'll, I'll quote uh, Marcus, jumbled piles of concrete slabs next to a field of red stem dogwoods. Um, this is how it is now. Wraith-like cormorants roosting on denuded skeletal trees. A shore, a, shore, a shore strewn with bent and rusty bars of reinforcing steel. 
And every now and then a coyote or a fox dodges across the road or an owl swoops into the grass to seize a rabbit. What makes it all the stranger is nobody planned for any of this. It just sort of happened. So in the, in the 50s, Toronto was anticipating a lot of shipping traffic. And so it, it, um, it, dredged, it dredged a second harbor and all the refuse from that um, was just piled, was piled in one part of, um, of Toronto. Um, and over, and then the ships didn't come because of, of other, of other factors. And so here was this wilderness, an accidental wilderness. And on its own, the earth reclaimed it, nature reclaimed it. And trees grew and shrubs grew wildly. And animals came and people came. And it's one of the most beloved places now for, for people to walk and, and to escape escape the city parts of, of the city. He, he writes, people had created a wasteland and nature was rescuing it. And he says, the natural world is fragile, but resilient too, when given a chance. So what we perceive as cracked or broken, this is where the light has a chance to come in. So feeling or knowing pain and despair and delusion, dis disillusion is often the condition. It's often a gateway for, for intention and action to, to end suffering. And when we give voice to our despair or grief, others hear us. We join a chorus of humanity and our voices and actions are magnified. In a beautiful book by Francis Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, he writes, what has become clear to me is the powerful role grief plays in enabling us to face what is taking place in our lives, our communities, our ecologies, our families and culture. Through our ability to acknowledge the layers of loss. So through our ability to feel to open to what's happening in our bodies, not the thoughts around it, but right here, right now, because our thoughts are mostly about what's happened in the past or what's happening, what we think is gonna happen in the future. But when we come to our body, as we do in sitting meditation and walking meditation, where else can the body be but the present moment? And so when we open to the experience of body, this is grounding us in the pleasant present moment. It's grounding us, it's showing us these, these emotions. Through our ability, he continues, through our ability to acknowledge the layers of loss, we can truly discover our capacity to respond, to protect, 
and to restore what has been damaged. Grief registers the sorrows that befall everything that matters deeply to our souls. Our hearts are kept flexible, fluid, and open to the world through this closeness with loss. That's just, that's just beautiful. So in this time of involuntary isolation that the pandemic is requiring of us, what can we invite in to help us meet whatever is arising? How many of you are familiar at all in any way with Yitzhak Perlman, who is a revered Israeli-American violinist who contracted polio at age four and he wore braces all the rest of his life and he had to play violin seated, just famous throughout the world. And he said, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. This is resilience personified. To paraphrase Jack Cornfield, another meditation teacher, we have a choice. Epidemics like earthquakes, tornadoes and floods are part of the cycle of life on planet earth. Now we could say literally and metaphorically, how many earthquakes and tornadoes and floods have we been experiencing internally? He asks, how will we respond? With greed, hatred, fear and ignorance, this only brings more suffering. Or with generosity, clarity, steadiness and metta. Can we cultivate holding a certain measure of the tragedy of the world and our personal world and respond with love? Um, I'm uh, I have both um, Canadian and American citizenship. I grew up in the States and I lived there till around 40, 41. And so what's been going on in the States has um, disturbed me deeply, has affected me deeply. And in my journal on election day, My reflection, my reflection was, um, you know, we look, we look for solid ground. We look for stability and reliability as a way to feel at ease. You know, we look for comfort to feel at ease, especially in conditions that we've been experiencing. And what came to me is, you know, and maybe we feel grounded and then we don't because things change. So what if, what if the true ground, the true stability is in change itself? You know, what a paradox. Knowing there is no solid ground.
no solidity, nothing really reliable or lasting or safe, as I think we've all come to learn very viscerally in the past year. And can we keep leaning into the myth of stability, of safety, of knowing as a way of reminding ourselves of it as myth? Is there anything that can be relied upon? When the forms of an old culture are dying, and this is a quote from Rudolf Barrow, when the forms of an old culture are dying, the new culture is created by a few people who are not afraid to be insecure. Could security, could self-doubt be a good trait? I find it hard to imagine how I could work for a future without feeling grounded in the belief that my actions will make a difference. But Barrow offers a new prospect that feeling insecure, even groundless, might actually increase my ability to stay in the work. So maybe we can ask the same questions here on silent retreat. What can we invite in here during this retreat to help us meet whatever is arising? Metta? Patience, curiosity, steadiness, compassion. What seeds shall we plant in this time together that will support us here and as the new year unfolds? And how can we stand in the uncertainty of what lies ahead? Together, together, alone together or connected by the wonders of technology or in person at last when we can. Together, just as the ancient ones gathered on such a night like this in the north, circled around the warmth of the fire and encircled by the warmth of togetherness. So thank you for your, your kind and generous attention. And let's just take a few minutes to sit together quietly.
So please take this time for continuing or to do some walking practice. Um, this ends our... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.